0: Welcome to the Robert Lewis sermons podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ's followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. In a bold new world that uh, there is some unsettlingness to all of that to talk about the changes we're experiencing and the changes yet to come, but What Alan said is true and should be our hallmark all the way through this uh, series, and that is Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He doesn't change, and He is our solid rock, and in that we can take tremendous comfort and be encouraged. You know, in a day of complexity like ours, it uh, is helpful to have summaries and lists. We live, as we know, in an information age, and being in an information age in some ways demands that we reduce things into bite-sized portions that we can swallow. There's just simply so much around us coming at us from so many quarters in all directions. And sometimes you can reduce things to one word or one phrase, put down summaries, and it helps us to make sense out of life and all that's happening to us and all that's bombarding us and coming at us. Certainly, there is a danger in summaries. And uh, sometimes a summary can over-trivialize a particular subject, but still they're a popular fact of our modern-day culture, and, and in some ways I'm going to address things today with all the myriad of facts that we could talk about. I'm going to try to reduce them down into some bite-sized portions. But I want you to know this October a new book is coming out. The People's Almanac book is going to publish a book of list, <clears throat> and I thought I would help us get started this morning by looking at one of the selections in this new book. Uh, it's pointed towards you women, It's uh, Irma Bombeck's Eight Rules to Live By. She presents some very clear and crisp maxims that will help you kind of make it better in the modern world in which you live. Let me give you what those are. Her first rule to live by, never have more children than you have car windows. (laughs) Secondly, she says, pick your friends carefully. A friend never goes on a diet when you're fat. Or never tells you how lucky you are to have a husband who remembers Mother's Day when his gift to you was a smoke alarm. Thirdly, never go to a class reunion pregnant. They will think that's all you've been doing since you graduated. Fourthly, never be in a hurry to terminate your marriage. Remember, you may need this man or woman someday to finish a sentence. Fifth, never loan your car to someone to whom you have given birth. <laughs> Six, given a choice between the man of your dreams and a plumber, choose the latter. Men who can fix your toilet on Sundays are really hard to come by. <laughs> Seventh, there are no guarantees in your marriage. If that's what you're looking for, go live with a Sears battery. It's a diehard. And then lastly, the one I like best, to you ladies, seize the moment, she says. Remember all those women on the Titanic who waved off the dessert tray. (laughs) It's a good image to maybe live by for a few days, ladies. Well, I have... um, the opportunity to seize this moment with you. And I'm really excited to be standing here today and to share some things with you. We've talked about a brave new church and a bold new world, and I want to expand a list of my own. As you can notice on the outline that you've been given, there are eight things that I want to cover here this morning, eight forces, I've called them, that I believe are shaping our world and that are impacting our lives today as Christians. Now, it's important that I'm speaking of those forces that, impact us as Christians. It is, as you can see, a summary list. If you've already browsed through the notes, it's a list of issues that I believe we must first come to grips with. And by doing that, I mean we must recognize that they are issues. And then we need to face and address in our everyday lives if we're going to be effective and relevant in the world in which we live. Now, let me say that... uh, One of the keys to understanding what I'm going to be saying today is that this list I'm going to be giving you are not the issues that you normally thought I would give you. They're not things on abortion or things on homosexuality or divorce or the family or racism, the environment. And we think of those as the issues. But I don't think of those as the issues. And I want to say that at the outset. I think of those things more as opportunities. The things that I have on your outline are the things that I think are the real issues the Church of Jesus Christ is facing today. Things like violence, abortion, AIDS, pornography, and the like probably could be better uh, enumerated as simply points of engagement around which the real issues of life gather and interact. But unfortunately, most of the time, we're dealing with the symptoms and not the source of many of today's problems, which is about as, as uh, effective as uh, covering cancer with a Band-Aid. So let me say again, what I'm going to be talking about are the issues behind the issues. And the points of engagement that we'll talk about later on only become effective points of engagement for us as Christians when we know what we're really dealing with. And what we're really dealing with is what I have hopefully enumerated for you in the outline. I don't think it's a comprehensive list. There are probably things that you might want to, uh, uh, to add to this list or maybe some things that you don't think are as important, but I think for many of them, we will all agree, these really are issues for us to deal with as I go through them. And we must deal with them if we're going to be authentic salt and light in our day rather than just coming off as fruits and nuts. So I want you to see this is going to be an important exercise for us. It's not going to answer all your questions, might create a lot of questions, but I think it's important that we get a sense of what the real issues are out there that we're struggling with day to day. So let's look at the first, the first kind of force that's around us is the fact that today we live in a post-Christian pluralistic culture and it has its own gods that people worship. For over 180 years, until we kind of fell into those tumultuous 60s that we'll be watching tonight in our uh, stage play, we as Christians live basically in what I call a monoculture, a monoculture. And by that I mean that the basic assumptions of our founding fathers was that of a transcendent being, and for most of them in the culture in which they lived, that transcendent being was the God of the Bible. They also lived culturally by transcendent truths. We find them in our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, and many other things, even on our coins and paper money. But we live by transcendent truths that everybody could communicate and understand. But most of those truths and most of those values came out of the Bible, It was that biblical ethic and a transcendent God that generally prevailed over American cultural life for 180 years. Christians or non-Christians never questioned the validity of the Ten Commandments. They never questioned the permanency of marriage or absolute truth or right and wrong or whether there was one God. It was these unchallenged notions that became the basis by which American culture found its sense on our one cent statement, e pluribus unum, from the many, one. And that oneness was found in common values, common absolutes, common truths that we got from our Judeo-Christian heritage. But we know those days are gone, are at best fading. We live in an ever-increasing polyculture, and we feel the pressure of it And our coin probably now needs to read E pluribus plurus. From the many, many. Indeed, the fashionable word multiculturalism says it all. We're moving not to oneness, but to a multicultural society. But I want you to know the real danger in much of that is not ethnic or racial, but it's philosophical. America has lost its philosophical unity which once was provided by that Judeo-Christian ethic. Now, in the abortion debate, the feminist debate, the family values debate, the real issue behind these issues... Now, they're issues, but they're more points of engagement, as I've said. The real issue behind that issue of debate among those combatants is the fact that they are speaking different philosophical languages and no one understands each other, or how to communicate to each other. But in the bold new world, the brave new church better become multilingual in the philosophical arena. Otherwise, it will be speaking to people who can't understand, speaking to people who cannot hear, in terms that they are not familiar with. The church is going to have to learn the language of the pluralistic culture in which it lives to be effective, to be relevant, to be impactful. Now, let me give you what I think are just four, there are more, philosophies that are vying in the cultural competition of our day. These things, these philosophies are all right now competing against one another for supremacy over American life, and the outcome is yet to be determined. But which give people, as you noticed on the little scripture statement that's at the bottom of your outline, it gives people plenty of teachers to go along with whatever desire they have. It gives people plenty of myths to follow with a lot of affirmation behind them. The first is probably one of the most powerful, at least as far as probably shaping the ideas of the 21st century. It is the philosophy that's called humanism. Humanism. And it's practically lived out day-to-day by many, many Americans, including Christians. Many times, the Christian lifestyle for uh, some is nothing more than the philosophy of humanism, not theism. In April of this last year, a large ad was placed in the New York Times. And it was entitled, What on Earth is Humanism? The ad went on to say that humanism was, and I'm quoting now, a joyous, life-affirming philosophy that relies on science, reason, and democracy. It believes in in an ethic of morality that grounds all human values in this one earthly experience and holds as its greatest goal the happiness, freedom, and progress of all humanity in this one and only life. Reason, science... Democracy. Now, at first blush, it sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Humanism sounds attractive, wonderful. The progress of all, the happiness and freedom of all humanity. And we look at those things and we go, wow, that's not a bad philosophy to live by. And many people do embrace it. In fact, I would say many of our national leaders personally embrace, though they would not publicly admit to, a humanistic way of life. But I want you to know humanism, as good as it sounds, as a prevailing philosophy, and it doesn't prevail over American life, it's competing in the arena of American life, but humanism as a prevailing philosophy has a pretty checkered past with its own share of skeletons in the closet. When you look back, you don't have to look far to find a culture in which humanism prevailed over a society. I spent this summer, at least a month, in Poland where humanism prevailed over a society. And we have watched the fall of an entire system of thought called Marxism. Karl Marx was one of the ultimate humanists, affirming everything in man. Adolf Hitler was a profound humanist. Those are just a few of the skeletons in the closet of humanism. Because for all its exaltation of reason, though it exalts reason to the ultimate pinnacle, the fact is humanism has done some very unreasonable things. And I think it's primarily when you go a little deeper because humanism affirms what the Bible radically denies. And that is the basic goodness of man. That's two philosophical collisions right there. Secondly, humanism denies what the Bible radically affirms. And that is that there is absolute truth in this world. Now, I say that because in the public arena, we Christians are going to have to learn to speak the humanist language. We're not giving in at that point as much as we're becoming sensitive to a humanist. Now, people aren't going to go around saying, I'm a humanist. But you can hear it in their language. And you can hear it so often in the different arenas and debates that are going on today. For instance, in the abortion debate, it would be so good if years ago Christians would have entered the the pro-life or pro-choice debate, not waving a Bible or carrying a cross. Now, I don't say that to be insensitive to my Christian friends who did that, but they were speaking mostly to those who hold a pro-choice position because of humanism, their belief in reason and human freedom in this one and only life. And so what they have to be dealt with in is the language of reason and of science and of those things that they hold up as their own trinity. So it would have been much better for us to speak to this issue of abortion more on lines with when does human life begin and employ all our powers of reason and science, which, by the way, are totally on the side of the pro-life movement and employ those to expose to my humanistic friend the unreasonableness of his or her position and the lack of scientific support for a theoretical right to choose. That would have been much better. Now, do you get a sense of what I'm talking about? That's the issue. Learning how to speak effectively to our age in these points of engagement now, I'll briefly mention only th- three others, but I won't go into such detail. But I want you to know there are three other philosophies that I think are, 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 are vying in this arena. Secondly, there is what I call New Age polytheism. It's anything but reasonable or scientific or democratic. It tends to major on the subjective, the experiential, the non-scientific, individualistic hunger for some kind of authentic spiritual experience. And those people walk into church after church and they hear dead, dry lectures on information that does nothing for them and that's why they leave. They're hungering for an authentic encounter and those people need to be approached just that way to help them find an authentic encounter with the living God. Now, New Age polytheism comes in all kinds of different forms, as you know. All you had to do was read the newspaper this week because it ranges from the ridiculous to the intensely serious. The ridiculous was this week when you saw a number of conferees out at Angel Fire, the resort center, and some of them were looking for angels in the sky with clouds. Some of them were hugging trees and uh, doing elf uh, spotting. Now, we laugh at that. We think, man, that, that is fruits and nuts. But you know, it moves on to a much more serious vein and we've experienced that even here in Arkansas like human sacrifice and the occult and the introduction of goddess worship into mainline Protestant churches and the personal deification of oneself so that you become God. That's what I mean by New Age polytheism. But there's a deep need behind it, and we need to speak to that deep need, which is the need to have an authentic living encounter with God. Then there's hedonism, a philosophy that uh, few of us would ever admit to, but quite frankly, there's a hedonist in all of us to some degree, and for many, it's a way of life. Hedonism defines good and evil not in terms of right and wrong, as you know, but in terms of pleasure and pain. And the hedonist's constant goal in life is to pursue those things which will increase his or her pleasure and decrease his or her pain. And we see hedonism at its best drenching and saturating youth culture today. Licensed by everyone, but then we deal with the symptoms that come from that. For instance... You can watch MTV and see Hedonism at its flashy best, telling people to live for the moment, live for the pleasure. And we never expose that as the real issue. What we deal with is what happens to kids when they go do that. We need more drug counseling. We need more sex education. We need more alcohol rehabilitation and insurance and all those things. And certainly, we need those things. But it's somewhat of a contradiction to be affirming Hedonism and then worried about the results. We need to be attacking hedonism because it's an empty philosophy of despair that's existed for thousands of years where people live for the moment and helping our kids understand that, and what eludes them is what they desperately want to begin with, and that's happiness. Because hedonism doesn't provide happiness. It just provides a thrill for a moment. And we need to expose the ugliness of that in words that kids can understand. And then finally, there's the growing philosophy that I will just call majorityism, which kind of has arisen in a modern culture because of our electronic age and the polling that we do, the opinion polls. In majorityism, the populace is asked to give their opinion on a wide range of complex subjects, yes or no, with questions that are pointed and sometimes manipulated, and you give your answer off the top of your head and then those are published for all to see. So the Pope comes to Denver and he arrives in Denver and he hears that 53% of the Catholics believe that priests should marry. And 76% want the church to permit divorce. And 70% want the ordination of women. And what we has happened is we've gone to just find out what people, to be, people believe. Till now that's become a philosophy of its own because when the Pope set foot on the ground the sense was the Pope's wrong. And we know he's wrong because look at these figures 70, 60, 82. These percentages show he's wrong. Never mind that you don't know how those questions were asked, how those surveys were gained, what kind of questions were actually asked, and how they were manipulated. But he's wrong because the majority rules. That's the new philosophy today. And we look at those things in U.S. day to day and we measure ourselves by them and we think no no more deeply than a statistic. That's wrong. Since when did morality become a popularity contest? No one's ever burst that pimple and just simply said that in moral and spiritual matters, the majority doesn't determine what's right, What's right is right, period. Whether the majority or the minority believe it. Jesus was real clear on this in Matthew chapter 7. He said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many, the majority, are entering by it. But then he said, for the gate is small and the way narrow that leads to life. And few enter by that gate. What the rise of these philosophies, whether it be humanism, and humanism's been around, Roman Empire was a humanistic empire. Polytheism, hedonism, that's the Greek Empire. Or the mindless majorityism, what they signal to this bold age that we are entering, and that's why I've got all that reduced down to one line. It just simply tells us that America has now walked into a new age of paganism. That's what we live in. We live in a pagan culture. And we need to open our eyes and just simply see that. And admit it, not despair because there's opportunities there, but they're going to require of us to speak a language that people can hear, to speak effectively into these differing philosophies, exposing their weaknesses in ways that they can understand. That's apologetics, by the way, and to demonstrate the truthfulness of our gospel. Now, I've given a book there to you that will help you get started, take your far Uh, much further than I can give you here today, that one by R.C. Sproul called Life Views, Understanding the Ideas that Shape Society Today. That would be extremely helpful to you. Now let me mention a second force in our world, a second issue behind the issue, and that is a politically correct Bible. Now we laugh at that in some ways, but there's a lot of truthfulness to that. Consider the response Harvard professor John D. Levinson, a Jew, got when he asked, a Christian professor of a very prominent denominational seminary, whether any beliefs or practices were required of the faculty and the students. The professor replied, no, none, except the requirement to use in their dialogue inclusive language. Now what does that mean? Well, what Levinson discovered was that the students being trained for the Christian ministry of a major mainline denomination were free to believe or disbelieve any of the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith, even including the deity of Jesus Christ, but if they were to say that Jesus was the Son of God, the Father, then they were violating the institution's deepest conviction because it was simply patronizing patriarchal authority and the oppression of women. So we need to change that word, Father, and move on to something else. Today we live in a world of a politically correct Bible, even in evangelical circles. Hard truths, like I'm speaking on today, go unaddressed because we want to be sensitive to our congregations and we're fearful that if we get into these things, we're going to offend people and drive people away. So we either ignore the politically incorrect text of Scripture or We do what a number of people are doing around the country and have been doing for some time, and that's reinterpreting those texts or throwing them out altogether. Now, I want you to know in numbers of churches and major denominations, Sunday school curriculum has been altered, hymnals have been readdressed to make them more culturally sensitive, not just more culturally updated, but culturally sensitive, and certain texts have been thrown out altogether. So, for instance, we've seen with mentioning God as Father, that's, you know, back to hierarchicalism. We can't do that. So we have to change Jesus' prayer when He taught us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven. Now it needs to be something else, because that offends women. God is not your Father. God is a holy other. He's a person. So maybe our person who art in heaven. We need to get sensitive to the day in which we live. Or how about those ridiculous statements by Paul, who probably had a personal problem to begin with, saying that men need to be heads of their homes, or that women need to even submit to them. Maybe you felt a little of that even last week when Bill was speaking on uh, Esther chapter one and two. You, you know, when you got to that place about what Queen Vashti needed to do. Uh, just, there was just a little tightness there. Well, theologians around the country said, you know, that stuff, that stuff's all cultural. That, that was by a guy personally who probably even had a problem to begin with, and that was for that day, not ours. Now, there's a lot of text on the fatherhood of God. There's a lot of text on, on uh, uh, men and women and their roles and those kind of things. But, but what happens is we begin to just tear those texts out. See, th- those texts don't work anymore. So we just let those go. And our Bibles get more and more narrow, more and more exclusive, to be more and more inclusive. And suddenly we find we don't have a text at all. You look at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and we will, by the way, look at that in the weeks to come. It's become a battleground by gay rights advocates. Uh, You know, you can read that story and you seem to get a clear understanding of what the writer's trying to say about what took place in that moment and the wickedness of the behavior of the men who raped others in an act of sodomy. But now we're being told that that's not what happened at all. You didn't read the text correctly. That the real sin there was had nothing to do with sexual immorality, that God judged Sodom and Gomorrah because they weren't hospitable to Abraham and and, and his guests, they should have let him in, or Lot and his guests, they should have let him come in. And because they didn't, he judged them and burned up a whole city because they weren't being hospitable. So now I can't read the text anymore. Now I've got to go to some elite who will tell me what it says and his words and statements to where they say, in many cases, just the opposite of what it seems to me in a normal reading. That's the world in which we live, the world of a politically correct Bible. And it's gonna require of the church and of you, when pressed in those moments, to make a decision. Do you believe this or not? Not part of it, but do you believe it or not? There's a third force shaping our world. I'm just gonna call it a soul-numbing prosperity. I had the pleasure to sit and listen to Peter Drucker teach, that that great uh, business professor, but he's also a Renaissance thinker. And he made this statement because he can sum up so much in just one line. He said, you know, as I look over human history, I would have to conclude that prosperity has not been good for humanity. And I would conclude the same thing, especially as I look at my Bible and as I watch people's lives. There's nothing wrong with prospering. But there is something that happens in the midst of prosperity that we're constantly warned about biblically. It has a way of taking, in the midst of all that affluence, it has a way of devaluing the real and the the important. And on the other side, it has a way of exalting the unreal and the unimportant. And it's like we're fighting it all the time in the midst of so many options and opportunities. I want you to turn back with me. I've listed a number of scriptures. We're not going to look at them all, but turn back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8 because right at the outset of the Bible, God warns His people about the fact that He will bless them. He will prosper them. But in the midst of that, He warns them, prosperity has its price. So be on the alert. And Deuteronomy chapter 8 probably says it as clearly as anywhere else in the Bible, though as you can see, there are many places in the Bible that speaks to this, and I've listed some of them. But look at Deuteronomy 8, uh, chapter 8, verse 11. Beware, Moses writes, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His ordinances and His statutes which I am commanding you today, lest when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, Then your heart becomes proud and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Reminds me of Alexander Solzhenitsyn's speech to Harvard University when he said, when grandfathers sit and talk to their sons about communism and what happened and why it fell and why the curse and why the blight, they will summarize it with one line, men forgot God. Look at verse 17. He says, "'Otherwise you may say in your heart with this prosperity, "'My power and the strength of my hand has made this wealth. "'But you shall remember the Lord your God, "'for it is He who is giving you power to make wealth, "'that He may confirm His covenant "'what He swore to your fathers as it is this day. "'And it shall come about if you ever forget the Lord your God "'and go after other gods and serve them and worship them. "'I testify against you today.'" that you shall surely perish like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you. So you shall perish because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God. Proverbs 30 says it this way. The writer says, Give me not riches lest I be full and deny thee and say, Who is the Lord? Prosperity is like an oppressive summer heat. It makes us listless and lethargic to the things of God. It is not that prosperity makes us bad. It's just that with so much, it robs us of the motivation to do the really important and the good. And that will be an issue that many of you will fight to your dying day. And it will only be with the help of others and your own personal Convictions that you have thought out clearly and your rigid adherence to those principles, that you can stay in line with the Lord your God and keep the perspective that He intends you to have. Then, fourthly, a biased, agenda driven, what I call new class, is the fourth issue behind the issues. And this new class is not addressing economic status or racial groups or educational level but it addresses those who control the ideas that are spread across our land as opposed to those who don't. By controlling ideas, by the suppressing of some information and the selection of other kinds of information and the exaggeration of still other types of information, this new class becomes, in an elitist way, the trendsetters of our day, your opinion makers, and the agenda agents of the bold new world that's coming. Principal among these change agents are the academicians that teach in the universities and colleges of our land and the news media. The former being there to educate our youth, the latter being to inform society, both with enormous influences in this image-driven, summation-needy age. Both whose ultimate value lies in uncovering and reporting truth. But today, you and I know a major shift is occurring on both fronts. Particularly, it is felt by most of us within the news media. And the quote that I've given you by Joe Sobrin, himself a journalist, I think, summarizes my deepest fears. He says this, the deepest challenge in journalism during my lifetime has been the subtle erosion of the old standard of nonpartisan, even noncommittal reporting. The old journalist had a sense of duty The new ones have a sense of mission. And there's a big difference. 86% of the U.S. media leaders attend church either not at all or very, very infrequently. By contrast, almost 50% of Americans attend church twice a month or more. America is still a fairly religious people. But those who control the ideas are not. And it creates... A difference in philosophy and thought and values. And we feel those values. Does anyone doubt where the national media stands on abortion? Does anyone doubt where they stand on homosexuality, or feminism, or the ideas of church and state, or premarital sex, or a number of other issues? No, they've been very clear. They've never been direct, but they've been absolutely clear on where they stand by the suppression. Are the exaltation or exaggeration of different bits of information spread to us like Big Brother in the Orwellian drama? Christians, especially, have been recently pictured as dangerous extremists. Ted Turner, as you know, called Christianity religion for losers. The major columnist Molly Irvins. Labels active evangelicals who want to get involved in the marketplace. Shiite Baptist. That's her term for it. You can almost feel the sneer. Pro-lifers, for instance, are labeled as terrorists because two people in 20 years got out of control. And so the whole movement now is labeled at all fronts as a terroristic organization close to the Ayatollah's heart. You know, it's funny that no one labeled Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement terroristic because of what the Black Panthers did in almost every major city of the United States. Ah, but there it was a different issue, wasn't it? And a different agenda and a different mission. I was shocked when our own local newspaper let Planned Parenthood run a large ad after the abortion doctor was brutally murdered by a person who really was deranged, by the way, who was kicked out of his church months earlier. With the title spread across our paper, they shot him. They shot him. We had a manipulation of the truth and a way of agitating the populace against anyone who would hold that position of being pro-life. They shot him. No, they didn't shoot him. Never mind the fact that every pro-life movement nationwide condemned that as murder, not as what they wanted. And yet there it was. They shot him. Then the images. Think of the images and the pictures you see. Have you ever seen, though, an aborted fetus on TV? The networks will not show it. When some try to get them to show it, they always have it blocked out. Why? They deem it offensive. Now, I do think it is offensive. I don't like to see it. I have seen it. I wouldn't want to see it again, tell you the truth, because it's too compelling. But when a major network says it's offensive, I kind of want to laugh. I want to laugh when I think, was it offensive with what they showed on NYPD Blue? Was it offensive when I see bodies from Vietnam or bodies from the Bosnian conflict blown apart, blood everywhere, kids mangled in the worst shapes? Or I see operations performed live on TV with the goriest of details? Or when I see violence played out in explicit form on every show on TV? I call that offensive. But they want to say, this is offensive? An aborted death? I see death all the time. No, it's not so much offensive. The reason is, is because it's convincing. Anybody who's ever looked an aborted fetus in the eyes is convinced it's human life. You have to turn away in shame. You have to deny your basic instincts to life. But you never see it. You never see a Mapplethorpe picture in the discussion of the arts. You never see a full gay parade coverage. Only a few clean-spoken spokesmen for the movement. And you know why? Because behind it all is an agenda. That's why listen to the media, and they will picture Christians as trying to cram their Christianity and their Bible-believing ethic down everyone's throat. But you know, I have to ask the question, who's imposing their views on whom? Who is it that has now suddenly changed when life begins? Who was it that has changed when sex is permissible and where? Or what is decent and what is not? and where it can be shown, and when, and on what hours, and what is normal, and what is not, and who lives, and who dies, and where you can pray, and where you can't. One Christians. Those are the change agents. And unfortunately, too often, the church maybe reacts to that in unwarranted ways. But I feel the change coming, not because I'm trying to impose my views on anyone, but because Joe non-Christian, or Sally Christian, sits down at their television set at six o'clock at night and has a mouthful of propaganda crammed down their throat at 6 p.m. constantly. That's what I'm against. I want to see truth. There's a fifth force shaping us, and that is what I call a tradition-bound, transition endangered church and it probably can be summarized just simply with this story. Here's a blue ribbon search committee and they've struggled because their church had been declining for years and had really struggled and had lost a lot of its membership. So they were given the task of finding the perfect leader for this church, someone who would inspire the congregation and restore the vitality of that congregation. So they found this great pastoral candidate and he came to the church and sure enough, he stood in the pulpit, delivered a brilliant sermon. Everybody was just mesmerized. And at the end of his sermon, he said, with God's help, I intend to take this church forward into the 20th century. People kind of sat back a little bit. That didn't quite sound right. And he went over and sat down and the head of the search committee said, kind of snickered a little bit and said, didn't you mean the 21st century? And this pastoral candidate Wisely said, no, I plan to take this church one century at a time. (laughs) And you know what? Many of the churches are a good hundred years behind, both in their innovation, in their understanding of the culture in which they live, and in their courage to preach the truth in ways that demonstrate moral leadership. And that's why, for the lack of those things and... Many churches to feel relevant have simply thrown out their beliefs in order to trail behind culture and simply say, you're okay, you're okay. That's why 85% of Protestant churches have plateaued or in decline today and have a tragically weak effect on the moral fiber of the country. When the church speaks, no one's listening. That's the real issue behind these issues. You can go back even into the 1950s and when the church spoke, people did listen. Let me add one thing with that, and that is the next force, a skeptical, suspicious culture. They have a right, by the way, to be skeptical of the church. Not Jesus, because they're not skeptical of Jesus, but they are of the church. And until trust is regained, they're going to view evangelicals with suspicion and even disdain. Why? Why? I think particularly because of the fall of so many Christian leaders, and I'm going to tell you, not just TV evangelists. It's gone way beyond that. It's extended into every city and town where men who were supposed to be the moral leaders of the community chose to betray their congregation or their constituents by a lifestyle that went just the opposite of what was coming out of their mouth. And let me tell you, it has created a massive distrust among the culture. And I think, quite frankly, if we were honest, it's created a lot of distrust in you. I will sit here and I will say things, but deep within your heart, sometimes you wonder wonder where he's really at. And I think that's fair. And it's a fair question to ask. And you have a right to do that. But the problem with all this is it's created a deep wound in the public psyche and in the church psyche as well. And it won't be restored until integrity is restored to leaders. And that's going to take a while. And we're going to have to show a, a suspicious culture that we really do care. We do really do want to listen. We're not intent on just cramming our ideas down in throat. We want to engage in the debate. But most of all, we want to love this world and help it. And if we don't, we're going to end up right where Romans 2 on your outline says we're going to end up. Because that's a quote, as Paul reasoned with the Jews, but I've inserted Christian, because in the 80s and into the 90s, God's name has been blasphemed, not because of the world, but because of the church leadership. And it's been blasphemed from Jay Leno on The Tonight Show to Cape Fear. You know, Cape Fear came out with Robert De Niro. It was a 1962 remake of that movie. But when they went to remake it, that psychopath that De Niro played... Hollywood changed him from just a psychopath into a Pentecostal-believing psychopath because they wanted to sneer at the church. Right before De Niro rapes this woman, he says, are you ready to be born again? See, they're having a laugh on us. But you can't blame them because the proof is in the pudding. Christianity used to be a religion that was called a proclamation religion, and it is. But today, something has to exist Even before proclamation, it's proof. It's put up or shut up time. That's a real issue. And that's why when we want to speak on abortion or we want to speak on marriage and family, they look at us and say, your marriage statistics aren't any different than ours. Which leads me to seven. A disintegrating family structure. If I were to arrange these issues in order of importance, I would list this one number one. And if it was a political year, I would again say, it's the family, stupid. That's what I'd say. But I might even get more pointed because maybe this brings a little closer to home. It's the parents, stupid. And it is. I wanted you to listen to this quote by Zuckerman in U.S. News and World Reports, a great article called The Crisis of Kids. It says Career and self fulfillment have gotten ahead of the caring responsibility of children. Children's needs have been sacrificed in the parents' quest for freedom, independence, and their own personal choice. The impact of family disintegration has had on children's lives is now a national crisis. That has weakened our social fabric and placed unbearable burdens on schools, courts, prisons, and the welfare system. And then here he is, this secularist, saying the nuclear family must be nurtured. It must be the center, not the periphery of social life. It is the family. It isn't because the teachers can't teach, not because there's not enough prisons. Maybe you saw the survey by the Arkansas Department of Education. It was entitled, Arkansas, High school students live in a world of violence, sex, and alcohol. I'll just give you a few. It reported that one in four teens here in Arkansas have seriously considered suicide. Eighteen percent have planned out their suicide. One in ten have been injured or threatened with a weapon on school property. One in three carries a weapon or has carried a weapon in the last 30 days. One in three has consumed five or more alcoholic drinks in a row in the past 30 days. 50%, one in two, have had sexual intercourse, 18% before age 13. That's Arkansas. Elaine Edge of the Education Department said, We're seeing an alarming number of teenagers who are using sexual activity now as just a recreation. And you want to ask, well, why are they doing that? It's the philosophy, stupid. It's a world that says, you can do whatever you want, you make up your own mind, here go, we'll help you protect yourself, and then runs over here and despairs because they're doing it as a recreation. Wait a minute, this philosophy said it is a recreation, you know? I want to have the fullness of my humanity and freedom. This is the result of that, but they want to fix this, but not tamper with that, and it won't work. Kids are uncared for, unprotected, they're not instructed in either practical or moral skills, they lack positive modeling that can be passed on for them to have their own family and they lack a family structure that works and it's the parents. And I'm gonna keep saying it, it is the parents. As I've listed that quote And I'm going to use this as an illustration. The family is the foundation of society. And as the psalmist says, if the foundation is destroyed, what will the righteous do? I've got two great books there to help you go further in this regard. Now let's look at the final force affecting us. It's a visionless Christian lifestyle. I would like to take a lot of time and tell you about this one, but I'm just going to use a picture that you can carry with you. I want you to imagine that you have been invited to speak to a group of Christian college students, let's say 1,000 college students at their graduation, and the subject that you've been given to speak on is my Christian values, not beliefs now. Beliefs start. Values, massage, application, implements. But you're talking about the last two. My Christian values and how I live them out successfully. Now here's my question to you. You've sat down in your study to write your speech with that title. My question to you would be, would it be easy or would it be agonizing? Would you find yourself thinking about values in a way that it just seemed real cloudy? I mean, you could write, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, I've accepted Jesus. But now we're talking about values things that I can articulate in a very practical way that I live out and I could pass on. Would that be crystal clear to you? Let me paint it a different way. Let's say that you were invited as a college student to listen to you speak that speech. When you've heard that speech as a graduating senior, would you be excited about what you heard? Would it give you a vision, a purpose to live for? It's interesting that Christians are real good at espousing doctrine and belief. But they're real lousy when it comes to espousing values and telling other people how to live those values out. They seem to draw kind of a blank. They can't see with their minds these Christian values in specific practical terms that motivate them. And that's why their kids leave home with no idea how to live the Christian life. But they do believe in Jesus. Until it becomes clear in your mind, how can you pass it along? Until it motivates you, how can you ever tell anybody else with excitement? Most of us, unfortunately, will be driven more by external forces of the moment, which prove to be self defeating, just like Barna says in that quote I gave you self defeating. We'll make this choice here and that choice here, all on external forces not on internal conviction because we've not thought it through to a value and application level. So we salute the flag on Sunday and salute the beliefs on Sunday, but when Monday comes, we're hedonists, Monday. Tuesday, we're humanist, Driven by external forces, Wednesday comes around and we just vote with the majority because you'll never be able to pass on anything until you have internal convictions which you are convinced before God will give you life. And that's why you'll hold on to them at any cost. The church has not done a good job in helping people come to that place. The vision's missing. Well, these are the eight issues behind the issues. And I want to say again as I finish, it's not abortion that's the issue. It's not homosexuality that's the issue. It's not pornography, it's not racism, it's not even the environment. These are the source, but not the source, of our problems today. But here's what I want you to know. In the weeks to come, when we do discuss these points of engagement, all these issues are gonna come into play. When we talk about women's rights, we're gonna have to interpret those hard texts of Scripture, not avoid them, because we wanna be sensitive. Are politically correct. When we talk about homosexuality, we're going to have to take a hard look at that, but not from a bias that just says it's all wrong, but we're going to have to understand the wound of what a broken, disintegrated family did to people, and rather than come back with arrogance, we're going to have to come back to those who find themselves at that place with a ton of love and acceptance and compassion and an open hand to come. Because that's the issue we've got to deal with first. And when we want to speak on issues, we've got to speak on issues because first, we're living those things by conviction. And when issues come up in the marketplace or at work or with friends over coffee or whatever, and they talk about life or they talk about divorce, you've got to come to a place where you have said, you know, I've already thought that through. And, and, and it's not some visionless Christian life. I'm committed to the permanency of the family. And I can tell you why I believe in life, even before birth. But you're not going to do it from a haughty spirit because if you're sensitive to the culture in which you live, you will determine what life force is driving them. And if they're a humanist, you'll reason those very truths in terms that they will understand and appreciate. That's the brave new church in a bold new world. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the time that uh, we have had to consider the issues of our day. Certainly they are complex. We don't want to oversimplify them. But Lord, it is our commitment here today that we want to discuss these things because we want the truth. We want the facts. And we want a living, authentic relationship with the God of the universe who has prospered this nation but can just as easily bring it to naught. And our prayer is that you would help us to become equipped in such a way that we could turn to the world around us even within the growing paganism that we find there. And we could speak to those people out of integrity, out of the proof of our own life, but also with words that they understand because we're willing to listen to them even when they're not willing to listen to us. And we want to help them and we want to encourage them. We want to be servants of a new covenant and of the good news of Jesus Christ. Our aim, we believe, Heavenly Father, this day is a virtuous aim. It's a godly aim. It's one that your Son would commission us. But we also confess it's a hard mountain to climb. And we need your help, the Alpha and the Omega of our world. We pray that you would help this church, this congregation, become a true community of faith, deeply rooted in conviction, deeply saturated with integrity, whose aim and ambition is not to live for themselves, but to live for the eternal kingdom of God, for your glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.